4, 1 to 12. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, it is for us to hear from you. And we ask that your Spirit would teach us. And we know that you're going to have to teach us too along lines that are sometimes difficult for us. Stories and truths that can challenge the way that we live our lives. Help us never, Lord Jesus, to lose sight of you. Help us to hear in your word the echoes of your grace and care and love for us. Challenge us this morning, Lord Jesus, but also heal and renew us. Help us to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing on in our study in the book of Luke. And we have this incident in the life of Jesus immediately preceding his very public ministry in Galilee. And it's easy for us to concede, having read what we just read, that there's evil in the world. We tend to think about that. Our television shows, our drama, our movies, our music. We don't have a problem thinking about evil. But the evil that we tend to think about is almost carnival-like. It's this gory, vicious kind of evil. This is red-letter evil. This is top-of-the-news evil. It's supernaturally crooked and dense. Now, the Bible deals with evil too, but maybe not evil in the same way that we think about it. Because we're, we're used to a certain kind of evil story. We're used to what evil is. We aren't making a lot of movies, we aren't making a lot of television shows, you know, about Gary who curses at telemarketers. You know, this is, this is not our evil story. The evil here is different. And the problem, the difficulty of the evil that we see here in Luke chapter 4, the kind of evil that's stalking Jesus seemingly as he begins this ministry, is that it's so commonplace. The temptations are so familiar. The work of the devil is precisely the kind of stuff we deal with every day. It's a little disarming to see that the face of evil, 
face of evil as we see it in Luke chapter 4 is something we constantly have to live with as human beings. This is the struggle. But every, all this evil, the evil that we see here as we read from Satan is just as destructive. It's just as vicious. It's just as difficult. And so we have to think about how does Jesus engage with evil? Evil that's kind of woven into who we are as human beings. It's close. How does Jesus say, you know, not today, devil? And what does that mean for us as we dig into it? You know, uh, W.S. Merwin, his most famous poem was called On the Anniversary of My Death. In that poem, he considered this really simple concept, that every year we pass by the date, the calendar day that will become the anniversary of our death. February 1st, May 27th, August 8th, 12th of December, whatever it is, he's talking about being aware of the fact that our days are numbered, that unknown to us, we are counting them down, that we'll not always make it past this particular date. So maybe we should consider what it is to live and what we should be doing with these days. What the devil is doing is he's saying these days and this time and this space Jesus, between now and and glory for you is irrelevant. Don't care about it. Don't worry about it. Throw it away. Temptation of the devil is the same for us. This time doesn't matter. These days don't matter. These hours don't matter. The wilderness tempting is really, it's really one temptation in several parts, okay? Okay. The temptation is this, will Jesus bypass his calling in order to grab hold of glory right now? The Satan tells a huge lie. He he promises things he can't give, which is what he's been doing from the beginning. His big lie is this, right? The number one lie is God is not as good. Everything that you're being promised is not as good, right, as grabbing hold of glory right now. God's future isn't as good as what you can grab right now. That is the, the number one, that is the huge lie that the devil is telling Jesus. And it's a lie that's repeated every day to all of us. Now, I mean, the second greatest lie is, uh, I'm going to Target and I'll just be there for a minute, right? But the first biggest lie is that the future glory of God is not nearly as good as what you can grab from him or what you can grab from the devil right now. Devalue the present. Devalue self-giving, self-sacrifice. This is what Jesus is doing. He goes out into the wilderness. He is, he is abstaining from food and drink. And at the end of that time, right, the Satan comes to him and says, well, how about this? So what are we going to do as we also attempt to live a faithful life? As we count the days, How are we going to consider these hours and how we live in them? Now, biblical scholars, they point out this, that Jesus, he he kind of stands in as the perfect Israelite here. You know, the number, that number 40 should be familiar to us for a number of reasons. But one big reason is because God's people wandered around in disobedience for 40 years in the wilderness before they ever went into the promised land. They leave Egypt, they wander. 40 years. 
Jesus shows up and he, for 40 days, lives out this perfect obedience. Jesus represents the fulfillment of the unmet promise of God's people. Israel's led by the Spirit. Jesus, it says, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He goes out there to do what they could not. The temptations that Jesus gives, I mean, uh, the temptations that the Satan gives to Jesus, they follow this wilderness wandering, the, the same kind of temptations that God's people faced, those great failures, their desire for bread more than the bread giver, their, their desire to, to be their own bosses, to be their own kings, right? Their self-preservation instinct rather than caring for their neighbor. These are the same temptations that the devil gives Jesus. These are the same temptations that God's people failed, failed to confront in the desert. Why not avoid suffering, Jesus, the devil says. Jesus' responses come from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you a couple of passages in Deuteronomy where Jesus is pulling from uh, in, in order to confront the devil. Here's what he says. So, from Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, right? You notice that again. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in Deuteronomy 6, right, uh, 13 and 14, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, right? Only him, him alone shall you serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are around you. In uh, Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But by his name you shall swear. Jesus' responses to the temptation of the devil follow the commandments that were given to God's people. Jesus is saying, I can do what they did not. I will keep the law that they did not keep. So the question is, what's happening here? What exactly is Jesus accomplishing as he's interacting with the devil? What we're having, what we have is a, is a kind of a divine drama. It's a divine drama of Israel's failure and by consequence, our failure as human beings. There's this divine drama played out that Jesus is re-dramatizing for us. He's defeating the devil while also capturing our imagination. This is what Jesus is doing. There's a paper I read on drama and imagination and the fact that drama helps people learn two very important parts of language. Narrative comprehension and narrative production, which means when we see things acted out, we learn how to understand stories, and we learn how to tell stories. Jesus is helping us see both of those things here. As he acts out this drama, the devil, we start to learn exactly what he means. He captures our imagination. He catches our attention. He shows us that he's here to restore what's been broken, to restore those who failed to live up. Jesus stands in our place and he says, you remember this. Do you remember this? Do you remember what it was like to not keep the law? Do you remember how you couldn't do the thing right that you were supposed to do right? I can do it. I will do it. He walks the road of our failure in the wilderness. You know, when the apostle Peter sees Jesus after the resurrection, 
He sees Jesus after the resurrection, and one of, you know, the only times that Peter seems to actually know what's going on, he recognizes Jesus, he he endorses who Jesus is, he knows he's the resurrected Lord, and he has this moment where he's probably expecting that all is over, and you know, it's onward and upward from here, and Jesus says, anybody remember what Jesus asks Peter? Do you love me? Yeah, I love you, Peter says. The right answer, finally. Jesus says, feed my sheep, right? Fair enough, okay. So Jesus is inviting him in, right? That sounds normal. Okay, thanks, Jesus. You're inviting me into this mission again. You know, I'm excited about that. But then he asks him a second time, and then he asks him a third time, and Peter, even Peter, gets what's happening here, right? That Jesus is retracing Peter's own line of failure, where he denied Jesus three times. Jesus walks him down that road. He invites him to see that it's all not lost, even though you did this. It's not lost. All's not lost. Jesus reminds him of what's happened. So now it means even more when Jesus invites him into mission. I invite you into mission knowing how frail your faith is. This is what Jesus does. He walks the road of failure. He does the same thing here for all of Israel and by extension for all of us who are watching. He tells us, he gives us this good reminder, right? That we have to look to the strong name of Jesus. That we have to look to his righteousness. That our goal is not to look at ourselves, but to look at him. To consider him. He captures our imagination and he says, Imagine what it would be if what you had to do was to not place faith in yourself, but to place faith in me. In this drama, he shows us that. He gives us this possibility. He opens our eyes to the possibility that poor workers can be the worker of God. You and I can do that. We can be a part of that. He captures our imagination. But part of that capture of that imagination is not just to say, look, you can look to me, but also to say that, look, even as mine does, you can exercise faith like I do in the wilderness. This is something we desperately need to hear. You can exercise faith just like I do in the wilderness. So to understand this, we have to kind of reaffirm what's happening here with Israel, Right? What's, what, what, is, what is Jesus dramatizing? He's saying, look, you know that Israel failed, but also consider what Israel's purpose was. Israel's purpose was to be a place of blessing in the world. It was to bless the wilderness, to make it fruitful. Their calling was to love the Lord their God and to love their neighbor. They were called to inherit this promised land that would serve to nurture the kingdom of God in the world. And so when Jesus, before starting his public ministry, says, I come to fulfill this, he's inviting us in to that destiny that should have been kept by his first people and must be kept by the new Israel, which is you and me. Saying this is what it's about. You too must cultivate a promised land. And so Jesus gives us the wisdom. He gives us the example. He says, this is how you live in the wilderness in order to keep the promise of what we're supposed to be. This is how you live. So what's the wisdom that Jesus gives us as he 
lives without food and water as he denies these promises, these false promises of the devil. He gives us this ethic. Okay, I know this isn't easy. I know this isn't, this isn't, the, this isn't a bumper sticker Sunday, unfortunately, right? Because we don't tend to celebrate self-denial. But that's what's happening here. That Jesus is saying, my wisdom is to deny yourself to choose a harder road. Now, all of us do this regularly in everyday life, right? Obviously, sometimes you have to choose to do the things you don't want to do, or we just couldn't function as human beings. We'd just be sociopaths, right? So from time to time, we do the things we don't want to do. We choose harder roads. If you, if you, you, you hang out with a friend, you give of your time sometimes when you don't want to, especially if you have kids, they have to eat every day, I've heard, at least twice a day, sometimes three times a day. You have to do the things that are difficult sometimes, right? But as a Christian, this actually reaches a whole new level of difficulty. For those who follow Jesus, they have to actually follow Jesus. How have we convinced ourselves that it could be possible to follow Jesus and somehow step over or around the suffering of Jesus. How is it possible? What you have to recognize as we see Jesus capture our imagination here and show us the way to live is that any strategy for trying to embrace both Jesus and living your best life now is doomed to failure. As a matter of fact, it's going to hit one very big intersection, one very, very difficult intersection, and it's called the Bible, because here's what happens. In the book of Luke, as well as Matthew and Mark, this isn't like just a Luke thing. This is all over the Gospels. Everybody seems to capture this from Jesus, right? They don't miss this. Nobody misses this. This is one of the words you're going to capture it. If anyone would come after me, let him what? This is, we can respond. You can, I'm going to train you. We can respond. Let him what? Take up, take up his cross. And he actually says something before that too. Well, not in the Greek. It's after that. But in English, it's before that. Deny yourself. He doesn't really mean that. He means it, deny yourself in a way that's easy for me, right? You know, deny the things that I'm already ready to deny, I hereby for Lent give up liver and onions, right? I will not eat these during the season of Lent. I refuse, right? He's not calling us to that kind of self-denial. If anyone would come after himself, or if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And then it says daily, which is very disturbing, right? So Jesus is giving us this picture, daily giving up of our own prerogative, which he illustrates in the wilderness. Every day, giving up. Every day, denying needs, denying comfort. So what does this mean? There's no way to establish, there's no way to construct a Christianity that exists without this kind of living. This ethic of self-denial is central, okay? And I can't just, I can't talk about Luke chapter 4, and I can't go in to the public ministry of Jesus without talking about this. Otherwise, this is just a conversation about, you know, lifestyle acquisition. How do we live like this? No, this is real. God is calling us to real self-denial. These 12 verses, they point us to this unmistakably kind of difficult 
self-giving and self-denial of Jesus, but also to ours. This is love in action. It costs you something. It's service that isn't easy and generosity that hurts and forgiveness that's offered even if it's wearying for us. It's choosing to stay engaged in the present struggle instead of choosing a shortcut around suffering, just as Jesus does. You might call it grit, okay? But it's not grit empowered by yourself. It's grit that's empowered by the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the desert. You should consider this. It's the third person of the Trinity that initiates this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the third person of the Trinity that brings Jesus, that leads the second person of the Trinity into the wilderness. I'm going to tell you, I think part of that reason is because the life we are called to live will also be empowered by that third person of the Trinity. That Christians must rely on the Spirit. After all, it is called fruit of the Spirit that we're called to live with, right? This life of self-denial is empowered by God Himself. Self-denial is a skill we have to learn, but it's not one that we ourselves empower. It's really important to know. So as God leads us down that road, as God calls us to live with self-denial, it's really important maybe to think about what are some signposts, what are some ways that we can understand how this looks? I, I think of uh, Ed Whitlock. He may have been the greatest runner to ever run. Now, his life is utterly incomprehensible to me, okay? Partly because he's a runner, but I mean, he's a real runner. He lived a simple life. He had a simple training regimen. And at the age of 73, I didn't stop running for much longer. At the age of 73, at the age of 73, it's like I have to believe that there's video evidence of this, okay? I'm not just saying this. He ran a marathon in two hours and 56 minutes. Those are standard hours and minutes, too. It's not like fake hours and minutes. Less than three hours at 73 years old, he ran. Now, he didn't just run um, one mile. He ran 26 sub-seven-minute miles in a row, not like in his life. Ed Whitlock. He was wearing decades-old sneakers. Really simple guy. Here was his training regimen. Daily, he would run very slow circuits around a cemetery. This is his training location. It was just, he would just run these slow circuits around a cemetery. There can't be a better image of what it is to be a Christian in this day and time, how we as Christians together, as the body of Christ, engage in self-denial. It is to be regularly aware of the fact that this life is limited and to not be afraid of it. To not be fearful of death. To live for the sake of our neighbors, to bless the common good, to share the truth of Jesus Christ, to enjoy life, to celebrate, to rejoice, to honor everyone, to do it without being fearful of death to be able to run around 
and cemeteries. I think of him when I think of self-denial. I think of a friend of mine who I would call a very righteous friend, okay? He's very righteous. And I, I really mean that. Not that he's perfect and he doesn't sin or that he sins less than you sin, but he has some priorities that I love. And he pursues the common good. He sits on what is the high court of our denomination, which I know sounds very impressive to all of you, right? But this is a real thing, okay? He sits on the high court of this denomination. He ensures that the rights of the minority in our denomination are heard, that the cause of Christ and the purity of the church are upheld. It's a very big responsibility, and it's so big, it's such a big responsibility that it might startle you to see him this time of year rolling down, scooting down Magazine Street in New Orleans wearing a gold lame jumpsuit because he is a part of one of New Orleans' greatest crews during Mardi Gras. And contrary to what you may think that's about, the vast majority of these parades are about the celebration of this beautiful, wonderful earth that God has given us and the ability to love one another and care for people. And in particular, he loves to honor people. And his goal is to be both a minister of the gospel and a person who lives out the idea that there is a loving God that we serve whose first miracle was one of celebration. It is wearying. I cannot imagine. First of all, I can't fit into whatever that gold lame jumpsuit is, but I cannot imagine what it is to do the work that we do every week and then to work at celebration work at endorsing and honoring people, to build relationships with neighbors that you'd never see any other time of the year, to inch by inch, step by step, advance the gospel that way. It's going to seem ridiculous. I love the picture in my head because it's an absurd picture, but you have to know that as Christians, you also have an absurd way of life. You really do. You think about it this way. This is the model of Jesus, you know? He throws himself into the wilderness, led by the, the Holy Spirit toward Midvar, Yehuda. And he, as he's going, he might as well be dressed the same way, man, because it is a crazy mission. The devil, as well as everybody else, probably thought it was absurd. And for your neighbor, for your neighbor and mine, who receives your generosity, for your enemy that receives your forgiveness, your attempts at reconciliation... They're going to sit there and they say, why are you trying to make things right? This isn't how we do life, right? We get mad at each other. We trade barbs. We speak to each other passive aggressively. And then we're never talking to each other ever again, right? This is how you do it. But no, instead, yeah, that's right. Instead, what we're called to is some other kind of absurd way of living. What do you do? You teach your kids who don't understand these crazy attempts you're making to help them live kindly. Generous, generously and God-lovingly in the world. You are going to seem ridiculous if you live this life of radical self-denial. To open yourself up to ridicule for following Jesus is self-denial. It is what we're called to do. Jesus does the same thing. What Savior, what God would head out into the wilderness for 40 days? What God would come back so raggedy? Only the God that we serve. 
Those are some of the signposts, but I think about this one too. I read a uh, true story, really, about a man who rode his rowboat into the Harrow Strait. If you know Puget Sound, uh, it's basically the most northwest point in the contiguous United States. Well, he rode his rowboat out there. It's a very strong current, but he saw a plank. uh, It was about an eight-foot log of Alaskan cedar that was drifting by in the current, moving quickly. Ordinarily, a log like that, you need a motor to haul it, right? But he rode his boat out there, tied himself to it, and he started rowing back home. But as he started rowing, right, the the tide caught him and started to pull him. He was pulling him south out to sea. As he was pulling him out to sea, he didn't let go of the log, which would have been probably my immediate response, but he continued rowing north. Current's pulling him. He's rowing his boat north. The guy keeps rowing toward his house. You know, he's rowing, you understand, to the north because that's where home is. He rows for hours into the evening, but he goes farther and farther away from his destination. What's he doing? Eventually, he feels the line go slack as the current and the tides change direction. He continues rowing north. He continues rowing home. He rows all night. But now the current's with him. Now, by the time the sun rises, he makes his way all the way back to the beach to his wife, who was looking for him, because, you know, the last time she saw her husband, he was just going out, you know? There he was. Here's what he knew. He knew that if he wasn't rowing home the whole time he was being pulled out to sea, then he'd never get back home with the log before the current changed again. He'd never make it back. That's the discipline of self-denial that the Lord's calling us to. Rowing for home, even when the current is pulling you away. Every Christian has to be committed to this idea. You're going to feel ridiculous and exhausted. I'm sure he had a friend or two watching him row the wrong way as he was being pulled out to sea, right? That's natural. You have to believe against your unbelief. What does that look like? Look, some of you, some of us in this congregation struggle deeply with all kinds of stuff. Some of you struggle just to to make it here on a Sunday morning. Some of you are struggling with depression, and you have for years. You row your little boat against the tide. You worry that you're never going to stop being pulled out to sea. You might feel like you don't belong to the big spiritual giants at church. But God dignifies those little works of self-denial empowered by His Spirit. He welcomes them. You're in the right place. Or you continue to believe the best and pray for your spouse. You continue to show up with love and care even when things grow cold. The relationship is brutal and you're just out there rowing your little boat trying to make marriage work. You try to heal things in little ways. You pray. Or you have a kid who returns your love with cruelty, who decides to turn their back on everything that you love and care about. Treat you like dirt. You pray for him. 
you're a single person who longs to be married, you continue to give yourself away to people that God has placed in your path for good. You labor for justice and mercy. You love your neighbor. You pray for God's kingdom to come, even though you know that maybe if you were offered, if you had the chance to give away the kingdom in order to just be unlonely, you might do it. That's self-denial. You pray for the kingdom to come. You labor in ways big and small, even as the current pulls at you. So it would be a mistake as we look at what self-denial means and how Jesus models this for us. It would be a mistake to think that self-denial is by yourself. It really would. It would be a mistake to get that idea. We should consider this, that there's one thing that Jesus dramatizes more than maybe anything else in his time in the wilderness. It's not just that we can place our trust in him, and it's not just that there's this life of self-denial that should capture our imagination. But also that Jesus counted the cost. You know, you think about this. Jesus knew full well. He had time to count the cost of redemption for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, he got to consider whether it was really worth it to save you, to rescue me. He had time to consider whether it was okay, whether he should or shouldn't. Jesus counts the cost of our redemption. We know that for 40 days. He didn't need more thrones or power or pain. You know, he could have tapped out at any point. What's the devil hoping? The devil's hoping to push Jesus to abandon us. That's the goal. Give it up. Go away. What does he really succeed in doing? Ironically, what the devil does is he gives us a little bit of a litany here. He gives us a picture, a story of God's care for us. Do you love them this much, Jesus? Enough to give up thrones or power? Do you love them enough to give up immediate comfort, being full, being at rest? Do you love them this much? Each time Jesus answers, Yes. Yes. Each time Jesus answers on your behalf, yes, I do. You see that here. If we were just useful to God, if He didn't love us, it'd make all the sense in the world to give it up. But He doesn't. He loves us. It should tell us something worth hearing. So what do you do? You scooter down the street, run your laps around cemeteries, you row your little boat. We look to Jesus in faith. W.S. Merman, he'd tell us that the days are gold, right? Jesus shows us what can be accomplished between now and glory. All of it's critical. We're called to this radical life of self-denial. But while we do it, we go over the litany. Does God love you? Does he love you this much? Yes, 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 he does. Let me pray for us.